Hello, my name is Adam Eason. Welcome to episode 43 of Hypnosis Weekly. Hypnosis friends, and a very warm welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Once again, in my own highly biased opinion, I think I have a red dwarf of a show lined up for you today. Yes, indeed. Let's be honest. It's cold outside. There's no kind of atmosphere. You're all alone, more or less. Join me on Hypnosis Weekly, and we'll fly far away from here. Fun, fun, fun in the sun, sun, sun. Ah, I love Red Dwarf. Uh, It's my all-time favourite show of all time, uh, with the exception, perhaps, of Game of Thrones, um, or Walking Dead, or Breaking Bad, or The Wire, or or, or even Blake 7. Anyway, the point is, I really like it. It's in my top ten at the very least. And what the heck, we better press on and do this podcast. In a short while, I'll be sharing with you an interview with my guest, Ines Simpson. Then, I'll be looking at the hypnosis in the news stories, examining the media where hypnosis has featured. I'm going to offer up some personal subjective commentary on the ways hypnosis is portrayed in the media, but also comment on the content of some of those media stories. We then return with our professional discussion with my guest, Ines Simpson. We shall be exploring her award-winning Simpson Protocol. We'll round things off with this week's hypnosis evidence-based factoid before I bid you farewell for another week. As I say at the beginning of every Hypnosis Weekly episode, this podcast is something that I wish to encompass. A feeling of embracing diversity, celebrating the field of hypnosis and encouraging friendly, professional, enjoyable discussion and debate, as well as doing its best to inform and educate I do not share the same stance as most of our guests and at times have major differences in approach and leaning, but all are incredibly lovely people who I'd happily talk with until late in the pub, and all of whom, following their time here on Hypnosis Weekly, I have a great deal of respect for. If you have questions, queries, thoughts or feedback, do get in touch via the Hypnosis Weekly website. All the references made in the discussions, along with related links, are posted at each episode on the website www.hypnosis-weekly.com. That's just hypnosisweekly with a hyphen in the middle dot com. You can add your thoughts, comments and make any suggestions there too. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else to help us reach more of the hypnosis community. It's greatly appreciated. So first of all, today is this week's interview. It's with great pleasure that I welcome Ines Simpson to Hypnosis Weekly. Ines was mentioned to me by one of our former guests, and I went and explored her and her work, and saw that her own pioneered Simpson Protocol had received awards and plaudits. Though she hails from Canada, she was in Hamburg when we caught up with each other, and she'd been on a seeming world tour presenting and training her protocol. I'm going to be inquiring about that approach later on in our discussion. For now, get comfy, my friends, turn up the volume, sip on your tea, enjoy this week's interview. So, as I've just been discussing, I'm delighted to have with me the one and only Ines Simpson. Ines, welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. (laughs) 
Thank you very much. And maybe it's a good thing there's only the one and only. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, 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 this is what we're going to find out, hopefully, today. Um, and and let's, let's start that by asking a little bit about you. Um, tell us a little bit about your background. Um, how did you get into this field? And, and how have you arrived at where you are now? I mean, because because currently you are globe trotting, right? You know, when I was when I was tracking you down and 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 getting you involved uh, with this particular podcast, I got a glimpse of your your schedule, and you were just globe trotting, whizzing around the world, um, so many destinations. You're in Hamburg at the moment. Um, 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 how has this come to be? Tell us a little bit about how things went for you. Okay, well, first of all, I think I was born in Belgium. Yeah, and then I moved to Canada six. But um, when I was in Canada, my brother decided, uh, he was five years older than me, and he got a book on hypnosis, and he hypnotized me and stuck me to the wall and all those wonderful things. Yeah. And uh, I started hypnotizing my girlfriends <laughs> at 10, which, looking back on it, was probably not the best thing. But I'm obviously well looked after from above, so everything worked out well. Yeah. Um, I went through life. I went. Um, I was working in hotels, doing restaurants. I was commercial fishing on the west coast of Canada with my husband. Mm. I did all kinds of things, raised my family, and all of a sudden, I'm happy. I wanted to be doing something that was important to me. I was tired of working in things I didn't want to do anymore. Yeah. And mother went to a course, and she thought she was going to uh, a course that was teaching psychic awareness or something, and it turned out to hypnosis, and it was like my light bulb went out and on, and I said, mine didn't go out, really didn't go out, <laughs> it went on. And, <laughs> and it said, that's what you're supposed to be doing, you're supposed to be a hypnotist. Yeah. And that was back in 99, so formally I've been doing hypnosis since uh, the year 2000. Wonderful. Wonderful. So since the year 2000, how did things develop from there? Well, I, I initially first that uh, took me into the direct suggestion world and uh, I thought, ah, this I want more than this. So I, I uh, luckily ended up with uh, Gerald Kine of OmniFame, who is now between Larry Elman and Jerry are the only two live people left that have been initially trained with Dave Elman. So I was lucky to train with him, and as you know, I definitely am an Elman kind of like to with hypnosis quickly. I like to do it. I like doing things fast because yeah. mostly, I, I'm my friend of mine, Ted Robinson in New York, who has been teaching with me for a while. Always when you know the Canadian humor is a bit like the British, and we are self-deprecating at times. Yeah. So I always say I'm the lazy hypnotist because I like to do things quick and easy. Yeah. And uh, he always says, "Oh, you mustn't say that. You must." <laughs> say that I, okay so I'm efficient but really it is all about laziness mostly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I like the techniques that take me in easily quickly and so that I don't have to work too hard yeah yeah and so and so how do you how do you define hypnosis then you know I'm, I'm, and, and, and over the years you know how, how did you arrive at that definition how do you explain it to either your students your clients or you know someone's sort of cornered you at a party and, yes. and, and, and is interested about it how do you how do you explain hypnosis and what it actually is well I can actually explain it very um, much the same as everybody thinks we've been taught to say you know uh, but for me, it's just a, stain, a change of state, and it happens all normally, every day, every well. You know, we do it all the time together. Right now, I'm in, I'm in a state that's probably a little bit uh, in hypnosis because I'm always kind of hanging out there. But mm -hmm. it's a stir. Uh, our awareness is different. So, yes, we have all the same things that everybody else says. It's a bypass of the critical factor, yeah, 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 all that stuff. And it's all true. I agree with all those things. 
but for me, it's all about the states and the awareness created in those states. Mm. Mm. And in doing what we call a hypnosis is we're doing it on purpose. Yeah, 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 I get that. And so, and so some of the people that have influenced that and, and that have influenced you, I mean, you've made, you've made reference to Dave Ellman um, and Gerald Kine, for example. Um, um, tell, us, tell us who are some of your major influences in this field. And perhaps could you share with us and tell us a little bit about the books, the authors that have taught you most and teachers that have been most influential upon you and the reasons behind that? Well, I think um, when I first started doing hypnosis in year 2000, I think I was uh, five years of reading, and it wasn't just uh, hypnosis books, it was a spirituality, it was everything. I was like very hungry at the time. Yeah. And I think um, I, I sort of added the best of all worlds into my hypnosis practice, uh, learning, uh, doing the Elman regression to cause work and all that kind of stuff, and then adding in, you know, and took some NLP courses, did this, took that, uh, and all different kinds of writers. I Roy Hunter, I would come to mind, I, and even because I was influenced in the States, because I, I worked at, I going to the NGH convention in, in um, Massachusetts at that time and now in Boston. Yeah, um, and I was always definitely very affected by all those courses I took and all those people. So it, anything from taking some NLP to spiritual classes to the, I, I think the one guy that really affected me. I don't know him very well. Was a guy I even can't uh, trying to remember his name, but he lived in the Bible Belt in in the United States. Yeah, and what he called his um, I think it was the first time I saw really great idiomotor response work was from him yeah and i decided well that's great so i'm implementing that so i i really couldn't tell you exactly how i came to everything i do i think it's just a little combination of everything i ever saw yeah 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 you've drawn upon a, a wide range of resources and so on much um, more than just uh, the reading um reading was usually I, I always say the dave ellman book is the most important book in my in my uh, library but I've I've read everything from um, uh, a, fr a friend of mine, Frederick Mao, is very very Ericksonian. So you know, I'm really not of one bent. I'm all everything is all mixed together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so throughout the years that you've been that you've been working within this field and and the way in which you've studied it, and and you know, I mean, you've been very prolific. Um, tell us what what's been. The, the, some of the most impressive application of hypnosis that you've directly witnessed? Uh, directly witnessed? I had someone, you mean in my chair or yeah. through someone else? In yeah, my yeah, chair. Either. One either. of the most um, initial things was very uh, back in 2005, uh, about when I started developing this um, uh, the Simpson Protocol, which it wasn't, I didn't even know what it was going to be called at the time, yeah. um, was um, a lady that was in the chair and she had very large, large ankles from arthritic pain, arthritis, you know how they really swell up. Yeah. So in the middle of doing this new technique I was trying, <laughs> um, <laughs> it started to roll and go black and blue and shrink right in the chair. Wow. And uh, it was very uncomfortable for her, I have to say, yeah. <laughs> ever came back up. Wow! Wow! Never to this day because I I happen to know her. So, yeah. Uh, it's very interesting. And with many of my students, those kind of things happen. Does it happen every day? Not. No, of course not. Sure. Um, but many strange things have happened with a physical ailment can disappear very quickly. Mm. And also, for me, it's 
I like to work very much with emotional work, you know, people who have depression, etc. Yeah. And the, we can shift that so quickly that uh, sometimes it's astounding. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to we're going to explore the the Simpson protocol in a bit more depth uh, later on. I'm really excited, really looking forward to 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 sort of probing that. Um, um, now, now, Ines, if you could go back to when you started out um, mm -hmm. as a hypnotherapist, as a hypnosis professional, knowing what you know now, you know, having gone through the journey that you've been through. Um, is there anything that you'd do differently? And, and if so, would you would you share that? And is there any advice that the person that you are today would give that younger you that you'd extend to our listeners? I think I'd tell the younger me to do even more than I did. <laughs> sure, sure. I, so I in what respect? Respects of taking more courses necessarily, more learnings, uh, taking being open to every possibility. Yeah. Uh, and every style of hypnosis and understanding, you know, I always get in trouble because I say all reads, roads lead to China. My, and my husband says it's supposed to be Roman as. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's, you know, you end in a different way. And that intrigues me and it's interesting to me. And um, that is why I think every style of hypnosis is absolutely beautiful. And I think if I would tell myself when I was younger that, you know, open your mind a little more and become more diverse. Yeah. 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 I think that's um, I think that's really valuable. And I think, you know, diversity and depth of knowledge definitely advance therapeutic, uh, you know, effectiveness. Um, so it's really mm -hmm. encouraging to to, to to hear you say that. Um, 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 so, like I said, we are going to explore the Simpsons protocol in, in a short while. But in the meantime, where can people go to learn more about your work and about your approach to hypnosis, Ines? Well, they can go to uh, my websites um, and the Simpson protocol. And if they go there, they'll see. We also have a. Well, sorry, that door slammed. That's all right. Chat here. It's going to kind of here. Um, um, the Simpson Protocol is the website, and there's also we have a membership site that we have free self hypnosis on if they're in, interested in that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but the, the Simpson Protocol itself is very well explained, and on the Simpson Protocol, there's also um, just you can go to inessimpson.com to, to to find out information. Yeah, and we will make sure that there are links to all of those websites and resources on this page of uh, this episode of uh, Hypnosis Weekly and uh, we will be back in just a few minutes with Ines Simpson and we're going to explore the Simpson protocol for now. Thank you Ines, we'll be right back. Enjoyed that. As I said, we'll be back with Ines for our professional discussion shortly. On to this week's hypnosis in the news then. And um, this week I'm asking the question, are politicians really using hypnosis on us? Because it seems to have become fashionable in the current climate of political fervour around the world, uh, though particularly in the US and the UK, you know, we've got this European referendum vote and there's the, the presidential campaign happening in the US. Um, um, it seems to be very popular for hypnosis professionals and authors to be writing about how politicians are using mass hypnosis. In particular, there's a lot of material about how Obama is apparently manipulating people, how Donald Trump is doing the same and how other politicians are being taught. Um, and let's be honest, they're not. 
If you go and Google the subject, you'll see that virtually all of these articles refer to the ways in which politicians are using language. And I've included links to a couple of the really popular articles um, um, of this ilk. And you can go and have a look at others as well. Particular language patterns are getting pointed out and highlighted, um, and they're mainly indirect Ericksonian language patterns or those espoused by the field of NLP, for example. There has been academic disagreement over the extent to which Ericsson's or the NLP approach can be compared to previous forms of hypnotism or whether it might be better being called something else altogether, you know, other than hypnotism to avoid confusion. Because one of the key difficulties here is that indirect suggestions appear to function by means of a fundamentally different mechanism from traditional hypnotic suggestion. So, for example, prolific hypnosis researchers and academics Stephen Jalin, Irving Kirsch, Halkvist define hypnotic suggestion as follows. Um, Unlike placebos, misleading questions and other forms of indirect suggestion, hypnotic suggestions are requests for imaginative experiences. And for that reason, they can also be termed imaginative suggestions. Like I said, that's a quote from Ling Kirsch and Halkvist. By that definition, much of Ericksonian or indirect language usage is clearly not employing hypnosis at all and would perhaps be better labelled indirect suggestion therapy. At least that's a, that's a recommendation in, in Donald Robertson's 2012 book. Many of the articles doing the rounds on the internet currently tend to confuse the public as well as hypnosis students and mislead them about the nature of hypnosis and its role in psychological therapy, often making claims that are completely inconsistent with research in the field of hypnotism. In these articles, it's often suggested that politicians are using these hypnotic language patterns and are saying things that are beyond our conscious awareness or are somehow circumventing resistance. James Braid's original definition of hypnotism was in terms of focused attention. That's conscious, focused attention on a particular idea or mental image accompanied by the conscious expectation of some response, that some response would happen as a result. Only later did certain authors seek to portray hypnotism in more obfuscating and mystifying terms as something to do with talking to the unconscious mind of the client, for example. Consequently, sometimes more evidence-based practitioners get a bit concerned that some hypnosis professionals and authors encourage magical thinking or surround themselves with mystique by suggesting that hypnosis can be used to manipulate the thoughts of the masses without them really knowing it. And this is the stance of some approaches to hypnotherapy, but not others. It was in particular a criticism levelled against Ericsson by Barber, um, Theodore Barber, in a symposium discussion of one of Ericsson's papers summarising some aspects of hypnosis research. Theodore Barber said... It seemed to me that half of Dr. Erickson's presentation was from the position of a natural scientist, psychologist and psychiatrist trying to understand what hypnosis is. The other half of the time, the presentation seemed to be from the position of someone of many years ago who really thought that hypnosis was a mysterious, magical thing. The subject goes into a trance. When he is in a trance, magic-like things happen. It is implied that a kind of mysterious thing happens because of trance. And that's Barber quoted in Ericsson back in 1980. 
And this quotation, it's, it's important because it highlights very clearly that the fundamental difference in outlook between the Ericksonian tradition in hypnotism and the cognitive behavioural approach, for example, that's represented by Barber. The more common sense and sceptical cognitive behavioural perspective is fairly dominant in the current research literature. Although many hypnotherapists are still, of course, drawn to the Ericksonian approach, despite the lack of evidence supporting it. It fascinates, it intrigues, it suggests that hypnotic changes can be made by wielding language in a particular way. And article authors are suggesting that politicians have learned how to use these mysterious hypnotic communication tools to influence voters and potential voters. Suggestion can indeed create change without hypnosis at all. Everything that can be done with hypnosis can be done without hypnosis. But if it's just suggestion, why state that people are being hypnotised? Evidence suggests that hypnosis is actually collaborative. That is, it requires the recipient or subject to engage in it, not be a passive recipient of it. It's not something that just gets wielded upon people. Hypnosis depends more on the efforts and abilities of the subject than on the skill of the hypnotist, you know, and that's good credible seminal papers, seminal research conducted by Hilgard back in the 1960s. I have a book of classic and brilliant speeches from throughout history, and when you pick away at the transcripts, you can see that a number of language patterns could be highlighted at times. That said, the field of NLP had not been created at the time, you know, and, and remember, NLP does tend to model what others do well. Politicians continue to invest money in delivering their messages in the hope and with the aim that we absorb the information and subsequently have our allegiance influenced. You know, they want us to accept their message rather than others and, and make a vote for them instead of their rivals. They want us to feel like life is going to be better if we vote for them. They want their message to appear more attractive and so on and so on. Political messages and rhetoric everywhere um, um, and, and they are anywhere and, and everywhere, you know. But are they actually anything to do with hypnosis, as numerous authors are suggesting? It's clear for anyone to see that politicians do use and utilise a range of suggestive techniques to attempt to influence you. On occasions, politicians employ techniques whereby they want you to identify with their values, their message, and suggest that you and your loved ones will be better off as a result of them running things. These politicians will even tell you what a brilliant, informed and intelligent choice you made by choosing them. They may remind you of how wise you are for having made this choice and how better your life and the life of your family will be now that you chose them. They may attempt to make you feel better informed, clever, enlightened, responsible or whatever it takes for you to plant your flag in the ground beside them. The point I'm making here is that many people do draw parallels with the field of hypnosis because politicians use words and images in a way that's intended to influence your behaviour and influence the way you vote. It's therefore not surprising that many people consider political speeches as mass hypnosis. We can see that within political speeches, suggestions are indeed delivered. In hypnosis, we often consider our clients to be suggestible. Suggestibility can be seen as an ability to welcome new ideas, being prepared to learn new things and take on other perspectives, for example. So then, as we take on new information, ideas and perspectives, depending on its relevancy and beneficial value to the individual, it may well affect a person's experience anywhere from a little to a lot. In a hypnotherapy session, the client is the person being influenced and is therefore in some sense also suggestible. 
They've chosen to be there in some way and therefore are open to making changes, obtaining new perspectives and affecting their experience in ways that are going to help them enjoy life more or cope with it better in some way. If you look at the work of Theodore Barber from the 1960s, you'll know that very few adults ever accept information without appraising it in some shape or form. So there's a great big difference between suggestibility and gullibility. Hypnosis does not render people gullible. Evidence proves it. Is the same sort of suggestibility present when we are subjected to political speeches delivered by prominent politicians? I really don't think so. We're open to new experience, or we may dig our heels in, defend our other choices in opposition to the politician, for example. And though that can happen in therapy too, there is a difference. There are indeed a number of parallels between how some schools of hypnosis explain hypnosis and some of the ways in which politicians deliver their messages. But politicians are not using hypnosis per se. Many even believe that unless a formal and consensual induction has taken place, hypnosis has not occurred. Some believe that unless there is an, an, an understanding, an agreement, hypnosis has not occurred. Okay, so we might use certain terms related to hypnosis to describe the effects of political speeches from time to time, but when you look closer, you see how easy it is to distinguish one from the other. If you really want to examine how and why people vote for the politicians that they do, then go examine and explore what the political psychological science research suggests, rather than believing it's because of hypnosis being used. For example, in a paper, The Psychology of Voting, by John Krosnich, professor of psychology and political science at Ohio State University, he shows that the single most important predictor of a person's vote choice is his or her political party identification. Um, um, and there are a wide number of other areas to consider too. Links to, to a number of stories uh, on this topic are listed under this week's podcast entry on www.hypnosis-weekly.com. Next up, we have this week's professional discussion then. I welcome back Ines Simpson. When I asked Ines to come and join me on this podcast, I also had seen that she'd received awards from professional hypnotherapy associations regarding her Simpson protocol. So I asked her if we could discuss that uh, and, and that approach here today. I knew that Ines's approach was quite different to my own. And that's one of the things I love about this podcast, you know, getting to speak and communicate with people who have differing stances and approaches, in particular, if they challenge my own model and approach. Um, Ines presents around the world on this subject, and when we spoke off-air, we talked about how others were developing her approach even further and adapting it wonderfully, as well as many proponents of the approach, getting some great results. So, here is this week's professional discussion with Ines Simpson. Enjoy. So, I'm back now with this week's guest, Ines Simpson, and um, I want to ask and explore a little bit about the Simpson protocol that's uh, uh, that, that's been pioneered by Ines. In fact, today I saw that uh, she'd even been handed awards um, um, by, uh, by, by by hypnosis conventions and awarded those uh, uh, because of her work and because of her development of the protocol. So, um, um, welcome back, Ines. First of all, can you just give us a brief overview as to, to what actually the Simpson Protocol is? 
Well, the system protocol is a method of getting people into um, deep states of hypnosis, and then, and then we can get into that argument about depth because there really is no such thing we say, and I agree to that deal. But we have to be able to talk to people about something, and so we have to use a word, and that word is depth. So it's about getting people deep enough into a state where uh, they can allow their conscious mind to be present but not as interfering as normal. Sure, sure. With that in mind, then, tell us a little bit, you know, how did it come to be? What's, what's the history behind it? You know, how was this, how, how was it fashioned? Well, initially it started when I was doing a lot of reg regression to cause work, and I started working with uh, men mostly. I found this with women didn't mind sharing things with me. I was a woman. But many men didn't want to tell me all the horrible things that had happened to them, and so I started to work on how I could lead them through the processes of change without knowing anything. Mm. So now in fact is that uh, we get to the stage where um, hypnosis now and it's going to sound pretty woo-woo to so many people and I have to say that I work in anything from very clinical to very metaphysical and I'm very sort of a spiritually oriented person so sure. I sound pretty woo-woo most. So uh, the, this is all about the um, connection to what I call the superconscious mind and it's just words because we all call we have to use words again to tell people what we think. To me, that all that means is we're talking to the part of the person that's connected. You know, you could get back to young, uh, young, the collective unconscious, or what it was, the part of you that can attach to any knowledge, the part of you that knows everything. Mm. So it sounds pretty out there to most people, and we say, well, you know, we go out into the field, and if you start getting into quantum physics, you know, we talk about morphic fields and all these things. So that's the the where that sort of... Uh, um, idea with me started was if if I could connect to the field, if I could get someone to connect and knowledge would come to them. And yeah. uh, so that was the initial premise, but um, you know, ACT OUT was, uh, took me a while to get that going and uh, nowadays I the connection to the superconscious is definitely there for me. And I have to say I have many students now who have taken the Simpson Protocol. And if you're into the quantum physics aspects of it, that means the morphic field of it, Simpson pushed larger than it was when I was all on my own. Mm, mm. So it sounds very out there to say yeah. the Simpson Protocol is actually easier to do today than it was uh, when I was doing it on my own. Uh, it works much faster. Uh, the students are having some astounding outcomes that I just blow my mind <laughs> yeah yeah I mean that uh, must be wonderful that must be wonderful to 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 to, ha to to experience something that you've created and pioneered being be, being taken on so readily by by your students and by by people that then go on to develop it and get results from it yeah it's astounding and it, it, it you know it's a little bit hard on the ego actually <laughs> <Can> <laughs> yeah yeah it's, you know, some humble pie Yes, you start to <laughs> very much so because you think, wow, you know, look what they just did with that, what I taught them. And that's great if you can pass it on. But uh, it's easier said than done in, in an acceptance way because sometimes you, it's your baby and your baby suddenly left home. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, I, I completely understand that. So, so what about the types of issues? What kind of, what kind of issues has 
the, the protocol been applied to and been used upon? Like I said, uh, pretty well from anything from any clinic, clinical to metaphysical. So I'm um, to work with people who are, their, their life is out of control. That means they have anxiety, they're um, of any level, uh, yeah. phobias, um, depression, all those things. That's my favorite stuff to work on. Right. But you can work on, we've obviously worked with people who to uh, aid in cancer, um, uh, all kinds of, any physical any mental, any emotional issue, and even any spiritual issue if, uh, you know, people come in with that. So I can't think of anything it won't work on sure, sure, <laughs> because sure. that's pretty well. People each this, uh, what do you use for this? And I said, Simpson Protocol. What do you use for that? Simpson <laughs> Protocol. <laughs> so yeah. I sound a little bit, you know, there's going to be that 98% that you can do uh, Simpson Protocol with, and then those still comes in that doesn't allow hypnosis. That's yeah. going to happen, right? Yeah, yeah. So then you have to use some other, uh, you you know, maybe use some EFT or something like that. Sure. But it's very rare because um, for me, I also believe in law of attraction, all those things, the ideas that happen. So I put out there to the universe that I'd like people to walk through my door who want to work yeah. <laughs> and who yeah. want to allow hypnosis. Yeah. So I very rarely have that. Um, so I use it for anything that walks through the door. If someone has sexual issues, we work on If they have, um, sometimes they even have, uh, I've even been, and we actually do this now, what we call surrogate hypnosis, is that uh, they come and work on their animals, but not, I know, yeah, uh, uh, she says that. <laughs> <laughs> but I've, it's happened here, and in fact, um, one of my students in Hamburg has developed a great system to work with clients with their horses and issues of behavior and health. Mm. And she's doing astounding work. So, you know, I'm yeah, quite happy yeah. with that. So if you want to know what it works for, I can't think of anything it doesn't work for. Yeah, yeah. And, so, and with- kids, we can do it with kids because they're so easy and they don't, you know, they're not like adults. They go, uh, adults, you know, I have to explain what the field means and all these other things. Kids don't say, yeah, it sounds good to me, and they just do it. <laughs> yeah, and when they're done in like thirty-five minutes, <laughs> yeah, everything has changed. You yeah. know, yeah. No, I was just going to say, I, you know, I, I love hearing that kind of thing. With regards to the protocol itself, the Simpson Protocol, could you mm-hmm. give me um, a, a, an idea? A couple of the main features of the protocol itself. Well, I think the most there's three features. I think it's three. Yeah, three features that are majorly important. One is. That I, when I'm working with uh, someone in my class, for instance, yeah. I don't even know what the issue is I'm working on. They have to tell me nothing. It's completely closed. Completely. They'd have to tell me nothing. I mean, they the can choose free. to tell me. Right. They can totally tell me if they... I'm, most clients will tell you they're working on something. Yeah. Uh, but especially in class or anywhere that's needed that they do not want to share their story, um, I don't need to know it at all. I don't even need to know what the issue is, period. And the other thing about it is that it allows the, which, you know, us hypnotists, we have a lot of judgment. <laughs> it allows us to keep our judgment out of it. Right. Uh, yeah. Totally, but, which is a, a, a very interesting feature. And what's the third thing? I always say there's three things and then my mind goes absolutely blank. Um, but I think those two things are the most important to me. Yeah. Yeah. Is that I can, so you can't make mistakes. The, the protocol then is not is not necessarily tailored for a specific issue. It's it, it's applied for the for, for the person. Yes, exactly. It and the interesting thing is, you can say, well, the client's leading the session, which is uh, 
it's not their conscious mind leading the session, uh, but it definitely you might be in charge of uh, working with the client and leading them through a, a protocol, but you are absolutely having no impact on how it works, how they choose to do it, yeah. all those things. Yeah. And so if, if some of the listeners want to go and learn more about this, it's the Simpson Protocol website that you mentioned earlier. Yes. The Simpson Protocol is probably the best place to go. Dot Brilliant. com. Brilliant. Yes. Dot com. Yeah. And the interesting part of that is uh, you cannot uh, interfere. Sure, you could if you were doing it wrongly. You could interfere. But I think you would shut it down because we are working with a part of them that knows everything. And uh, we consciously, when as we're working... Uh, we're not really the the one there with all the knowing, true? So, sure. So, um, um, if people want to go and learn more about this. It's the the, the Simpson Protocol um, um, dot com website, and we'll have a link to that um, um, to that page uh, with regards to that over at this episode of the Hypnosis Weekly website. Ines, thank you ever so much for joining oh, us and being my guest and sharing so readily about your about your protocol. I hope um, that, the, that, that the plaudits continue. So all that remains for me to say is, Ines Simpson, thank you very much. Um, um, thank you very much for being a part of Hypnosis Weekly. Thank you very much. There is a link to the website of Ines Simpson over at this episode's page of the Hypnosis Weekly website. So, next up, we're on to our evidence-based hypnosis factoid of the week. As published in the British Medical Journal, Ewer and Stewart, uh, authors of a 1986 paper, found that hypnosis outperformed the control group being given conventional attentional control when it came to lowering asthma severity. There were fewer self-reported symptoms, greater peak expiratory flow and reduced use of bronchodilators. So our evidence-based factoid of the week is that hypnosis outperforms the conventional approach of attentional control in reducing asthma severity, lowering symptoms, and reducing use of bronchodilators. That's Ewer and Stewart, 1986. And there's a link to the British Medical Journal entry for this study at this episode's page at the Hypnosis Weekly website. Um, I'm, I'm, I apologise about some of the sound with our recordings uh, um, this week. Our, our connection wasn't that good. Um, I'm, I'm having listened back what I've been doing the editing, there's uh, it's a bit choppy in places. But I hope it didn't impair your enjoyment too much. I do have many more exciting guests that I'll welcome to Hypnosis Weekly in coming weeks too. I have some titans of the field and I also have some people with some very differing stances to mine. We'll be discussing, debating, celebrating and above all remaining friends. And to repeat, all the references made in the discussions along with related links are posted at each episode on the Hypnosis Weekly website www.hypnosis-weekly.com. Next time out, I welcome multi-author and the first hypnotherapist I've ever met who has Asperger's syndrome, uh, Mr. Dan Jones. We discuss his Asperger's. Uh, we discuss his uh, favoured solution-focused approaches and his strong Ericksonian influence in next week's show. I absolutely welcome your thoughts, comments, suggestions and questions, so do please message me or add them on the Hypnosis Weekly website and I'll make sure they are addressed, answered and explored accordingly. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else. Really help us reach the hypnosis field. Thanks again to Ines Simpson. My thanks to you for tuning in. My name is Adam Eason. This has been Hypnosis Weekly. Until next time, goodbye for now. <music>